Close those loops. That's what the gospel is all about. It's about God turning our hearts back to Him, bringing reconciliation with Him and us, and then us with others because of the reconciliation we have with Jesus. Let's close those loops. The only way Satan has ammunition against us is if we give it to him. It's interesting. I don't mean to be crash, but if we're looking at the cross, Satan's only got a view of our backside. A guilty conscience is like a plague that infects the way you see everything in your life. In today's message, Joseph's brothers find that their money has been returned to them, but they can only see it as a curse. As Pastor Daniel will explain, their guilt about what they did to their brother won't allow them to see anything as a possible blessing. The enemy wants to put that yoke on you. Don't let it. Now, here's Pastor Daniel in the book of Genesis, chapter 41, verse 53, with his continuing study entitled, Joseph in Egypt. When you read the list of the 12 tribes of Israel, sometimes Joseph is named, and other times Ephraim and Manasseh are named for all these different reasons. So although Jacob had 12 sons, there's actually technically 13 tribes. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, of course, in the New Testament, how many disciples did Jesus choose? Twelve, right? But one committed suicide, right? And what did they do? They picked up Matthias in Acts chapter 1. And then, of course, the Apostle Paul was an apostle as well. By chance that there's actually 13 apostles? No. It all fits together. It doesn't always make sense why to us. But it all fits, just as there are, in effect, 13 tribes of Israel because of the adoption of Ephraim and Manasseh by Jacob. They choose Matthias, and the Apostle Paul comes in later as well. Very fascinating. Very fascinating. What's also interesting, just as a a piece of biblical information, because he comes up, Ephraim. If you recall, and we're going to get there in about 30 years, but... (laughs) But after Solomon, the 12 tribes split up into the north and south to what is most commonly called Israel and Judah. The 10 northern tribes are called Israel. The two southern tribes are called Judah. What's interesting is that out of the 10 northern tribes, the tribe of Ephraim is the largest. And when you read the prophetic books, they talk about Ephraim also because Ephraim, because he was the largest tribe, became Uh, symbolic of of the ten northern tribes. Just the way Judah, the two southern tribes, Judah was the largest. And that's why they get those designations. So it's interesting that when you're reading the prophetic books and it talks about Ephraim, the idea is the ten northern tribes, but because Ephraim is the largest, it gets the, the place of prominence there. So, But that's where he comes from. Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, continuing in verse 53... Then the seven years of plenty which were in the land of Egypt ended, and the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, the famine was in all the lands, but in the land of Egypt there was bread. 
So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Then Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, do. The famine was over all the face of the earth. And Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. And the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. So all countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe in all the lands. Now, now you see this. Seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. There is an implication that I want to make for this. Is that it's not always mountaintop time with God. There are mountaintop seasons and there are valley seasons. Some people call it the difference between manifestation and hiddenness. What this means is that just as we have the changing of the seasons in the, the way God created the world, there are also seasons in our spiritual lives. And for most of us, we just want it to be summer all the time. We just want it to be nice and warm, sunny, perfect. But realistically speaking, there are times of feasting and there are times of mourning. And that's just part of life. And I think the key for us is to remember that we can worship God in the storms and in the valleys with the same fervency than when we're in the mountaintop and when it's summertime. But that is a decision of the will. See, I remember when I was coming up to Crossroads a lot in the wintertime, right? I was taken off from San Francisco. It's foggy, right? But then you get up, up above the cloud cover, and what is it? It's sunny. And then, of course, you come on down into Portland, and you guys know what it's like. It's kind of misty. But what's amazing is every time you look up, even though it looks cloudy, you know that the sun is above the clouds. That's not there by chance. That's by design. So if you're in here today and you are in a cloudy season, a season of hiddenness, a season of famine in your soul, still choose to praise the God who still exists above the cloud cover. Don't let your circumstances blind you from the reality that the sun is still shining. The sun is still shining. God was still God when the famine hit in Egypt. God was still God when it was a time of plenty. So the seven years of famine hit, but the Egyptians are prepared. God had already shown them what to do. Joseph had done it. People start freaking out. There's no bread. Go to Joseph and do whatever he says. And Joseph starts to bring out the grain because he was prepared he used foresight, forethought. And you notice that at the end, verse 57, so all countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe in all the lands. Now, this, of course, sets the stage. This sets the stage for what's going to happen next. Now, look at what happens in Genesis chapter 42. When Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there that we may live and not die. So Joseph's 10 brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, lest some calamity befall him. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. So now, 
the famine hits Canaan where Jacob's family is. Right? And Jacob says, listen, I heard there's grain in Egypt. You guys go. But he only sends 10. Why? He doesn't want Benjamin to go. Now again, it seems that Jacob hasn't learned yet. He's still showing favoritism to the children of his favorite wife. Joseph was gone. Remember, he gave Joseph that multicolored coat, got him in all sorts of trouble with his brother. Now the other brothers go, but Benjamin stays. Jacob's like, I do not want anything to happen to Benjamin. Now, we've said this a lot here. The Bible never condones polygamy. And in that culture, that was a very common thing. It was one of the ways women were oppressed. And the Bible paints polygamy negatively from the beginning to the end. And they make it very clear that Jesus only has one bride. So it's interesting. It's subversive just in content alone. Shows a very common practice, although being used by the patriarchs in a very negative light. It becomes a source of struggle all the way through. Now in verse 6, Now Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. And Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them, and he spoke roughly to them. Then he said to them, where do you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. But he said to them, no, but you have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, your servants are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I spoke to you, saying, you are spies. In this manner, you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother and you shall be kept in prison that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison for three days. Now, Joseph's brothers come. They don't realize that it's their brother Joseph who has oversight over the distribution of grain. So they come on up they bow down to him. Joseph recognizes him. They don't see him, but they're bowing down. And Joseph remembered that dream. The one that they got so mad about, he remembered. Oh, here it is. But what's interesting, what's interesting is when he realizes it, he doesn't trust them. You're spies. And it's interesting. A lot of people make a lot of, there's so much commentary about this. What we should think about Joseph's motives in doing this. There are those who want to paint Joseph's motives as he's just being vindictive. His brother sold him into slavery. Now they're bowing down. Now he just wants to make their life hard. There are other people who say that Joseph wants to see if they've changed their hearts at all. The Bible doesn't really say. We just, we're just hearing what Joseph did. And it's interesting that he calls them spies. They say, no, no, we're honest men. Yeah. I mean... Joseph had to have a pretty mean poker face at that moment. <laughs> oh, yeah, you guys are real honest, huh? Yeah, let's, let's talk about your brother Joseph, you know. 
But what's interesting is that as this is happening, he finds out that his brother Benjamin is still alive. And there are some commentators and a lot of rabbis make the case that what you have going on here is that Joseph starts getting concerned for his brother Benjamin's well-being. So he wants Benjamin to be here so he could protect him. Now, it doesn't say that in the Bible, so I'd throw that out there. For those of you who want to think the best intentions about Joseph's motives, you can do it that way. Others can say, well, Joseph's just being mean, and maybe he has the right to be mean because they were really mean to him. But remember I've told you that Joseph is a picture or a type of Jesus? Do you realize that Joseph's brothers, when they saw him again, they didn't recognize him? Makes you think about the disciples on the road to Emmaus, right? When Jesus showed up and they didn't know who it was. It was only when he broke bread that they realized. When are they going to find out that it's Joseph? When they're breaking bread at a meal. I didn't write this stuff. It's just in there and it's fascinating. It's fascinating. So where does this end up? It ends up saying, look, if you guys are honest, you're going to bring the youngest brother here. And he throws him in jail for three days. He throws him in jail. Now in verse 18, Then Joseph said to them the third day, Do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house, but you go and carry grain for the famine to your houses and bring your youngest brother to me. Verse 20, So your words will be verified and you shall not die. So they did so. And then they said to one another, We are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us. And we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them saying, Did I not speak to you saying, Do not sin against the boy? And you would not listen. Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. But they did not know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke to them through an interpreter. And he turned himself away from them and wept. Then he returned to them again and talked with them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Now, what's fascinating about this? This is what happens when you have a guilty conscience. They had a guilty conscience. They knew that they had done wrong, and bad things were happening, and they're like, this is my fault. This is why, brothers and sisters, listen, this is why we want to live our lives in such a way that there's no reason for us to have a guilty conscience. Because when you do something and you know you ought not to do it, when bad things happen, you start kicking yourself, don't you? We all know what this is like. We've all done this in some ways. And this is why the exhortation of Scripture is to be blameless. This is why God has given us His Holy Spirit to indwell us so that when push comes to shove, we can come to God and say, God, as best as I understand, I'm doing it right by you. But when we have a guilty conscience, Satan has got an avenue. He's got an avenue to say, this is all going wrong because of what you've done. And they're sitting in jail and they're thinking to themselves, we're here because of what we did to Joseph. They're automatically brought back to their own mistake. And that's the problem with a guilty conscience. That's the problem with it. And I think for all of us, and I include myself in this, is that we don't want to give Satan a foothold. We don't want to live our lives in such a way that we open up a back door for him just to get in. Here you go, Satan. Here's the key. Come around whenever you want. Mikasa sukasa. Satanas. Come on in. But we do it all the time, don't we? We make bad decisions and we give him an opportunity. 
It's a whole other thing than like you see other people in the Bible. They come like, Lord, I'm blameless before you. I don't have a clue what's going on. But it's not my fault. So make good decisions. And if you've made bad decisions, close those loops. That's what the gospel is all about. It's about God turning our hearts back to him, bringing reconciliation with him and us, and then us with others because of the reconciliation we have with Jesus. Let's close those loops. The only way Satan has ammunition against us is if we give it to him. It's interesting. I don't mean to be crash, but if we're looking at the cross, Satan's only got a view of our backside. But we need to behold the cross, don't we? When, when we start to veer from focus down on the cross, when we start to veer, we start to expose ourselves. If we say focus on the cross, I hate to say it and don't be mad, but what you're saying is, Satan, kiss my butt. And you know what? That's a fitting thing for the enemy of your soul. Someone's going to tweet that, right? <laughs> Satan, kiss my butt. And I'm sorry, for some, that might be a little bit, you know, undignified for a pastor. I'm sorry. But you know what? Jesus died so that we could say that. Him who wants the glory of God has nothing for us. Because Jesus is Lord. But we need to stay centered there. We need our lives to be conformed, that we are focused there. And guilty consciences get us in trouble. They get us in trouble. So what happens? They realize they're in trouble. They don't even realize Joseph understands everything they're saying. And Joseph's getting broken up inside because he's reliving the hurts of his past. So what does he do? He ends up taking Simeon as a prisoner. Why Simeon? We don't really know. Simeon didn't play a prominent role in the selling of Joseph, but Simeon's the one who gets chosen. So in verse 25, look at what happens. Then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain, to restore every man's money to his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. Thus he did for them. So they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed from there. But as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey feed, at the encampment he saw his money, and there it was in the mouth of his sack. So he said to his brothers, my money has been restored, and there it is in my sack. Then their hearts failed them, and they were afraid, saying to one another, what is this that God has done to us? So Joseph blesses his family. He gives them the grain, and he doesn't even take the money. But again, when you have a guilty conscience, even God's blessings are terrifying. I mean, they should have been rejoicing. Like, we went to buy this grain, we took all this money, they gave us the grain, and we got the money bank, and they're thinking to themselves, God is cursing us. Again, this is the fruit of a guilty conscience. This is what happens. But I love this, because Joseph is living out loving his enemies, blessing those who curse them. What it says in Romans twelve seventeen: repay no one evil for evil, but have... Regard for good things in the sight of all men. Romans 12, 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is awesome. Joseph could have hurt his brothers. He had the authority and the motive and the opportunity. But what did he do? He blessed them instead. 
And brothers and sisters, we should not expect non-Christians to love their enemies, but we should expect that we do. And I know it's hard, but we learn it from Jesus. For God so loved the world that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And every time we struggle with loving people, we come to the cross and we say, God, I do not know how to do this. Lord, it's not within me. And he's like, you're right, it's within me. And I've given myself to you that you may learn a more excellent way. And I know that with men it's impossible. But we're not talking about humanistic philosophy. We're talking about the supernatural presence of the almighty God in the person of his spirit indwelling a fallen person who's been redeemed. And we need to ask God to make room in our hearts for people who have hurt us, who have wronged us, who continue to wrong us, that although they do evil to us, we do good to them. Though they accuse us, we bless them and speak well of them. The tit for tat ended at the cross for us. And Joseph is a shining, I mean, he's blessing his family. He's blessing these guys, but they are freaked out, totally freaked out. They find their money. They're like, oh man, this is bad. This is really bad. But it was actually really good. They missed the blessings of God. Verse 29, then they went to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan and told him all that had happened to them saying, the man who is Lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, we are honest men. We are not spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of our fathers. One is no more. And the youngest is with our father this day in the land of Canaan. And then the man, the Lord of the country said to us, by this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for the famine of your households and be gone and bring your youngest brother to me. So I shall know that you are not spies, but that you are honest men. I will grant your brother to you and you may trade in the land. And then it happened as they emptied their sacks, that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin? All these things are against me. Then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. And he said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he is left alone. If any calamity shall befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. After they recount these events to Jacob, Jacob's just upset now. He's like, are you kidding me? Joseph is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin? You want to take Benjamin? Really? Really? And and it's interesting because, you know, Reuben steps on up and says, look, you can kill my sons if I don't bring him back. You know, and it's good because it's good that Reuben stepped up and said, hey, look, I'm going to try and do this. He failed to prevent the loss of Joseph, but at least he's willing to try again. Jesus is Joseph's brothers, as they sat in jail, remembered what they had done to Joseph. Pastor Daniel encouraged us to make good decisions, reconciling ourselves to the Father. Joseph repays his brothers evil with blessing from a place of love. 
We're so happy that you're a part of the Jesus is Real Radio family. Jesus is Real Radio is a listener-supported program. We want to let the whole world know that Jesus is real. Your donations help make this possible. You can become a monthly supporter or give a one-time gift by text message. It's easy. Simply text your gift to 855-910-8300. That's 855-910-8300. Hey everybody, Pastor Daniel Fusco here from Jesus Is Real Radio. I'm so excited. My book, Honestly, Getting Real About Jesus and Our Messy Lives is available right now. It is released and God is using this book to be a message of hope to people who realize that life is messy, but Jesus is real. So get the book now. You can download it online. Go to honestlybook.com or wherever books are sold and where you like to get it. You and your friends are going to be blessed to get to read Honestly. I'm so excited about it. God bless you. Join us again here on Jesus is Real Radio when Joseph's brothers will be brought to his house. But not for the reasons they think. Joseph isn't seeking revenge, even though he was wronged. So it is with God and us. We wish we had more time today, but we will have to pick up where we left off next time as Pastor Daniel continues teaching through his series entitled Brothers. That's next time on Jesus is Real Radio. Real. My life is no